America now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. The House passed it. $1.1 trillion spending bill, excluding some of Trump's priorities. That's the headline here. Buck Sexton with you all now. Thank you so much for joining the House of Representatives has now uh, moved the ball downfield, and the Senate is expected to vote uh, before government funding expires on Saturday. And the Senate is expected to pass this legislation as well. We talked uh, at some length about this yesterday. We know more or less what's in this, and it's what was going to be in it before. There was no shutdown. There was no brinksmanship. There wasn't even much of a, a, a peep, much of a fight, much of a, an anything over this. It just kind of happened. And we're told that this is a good start for the Trump administration, that there are some very good things in this budget. Now, I can understand a lot of the different rationales that have been offered up for this, but I am left feeling unfulfilled as somebody who cast his vote for Donald Trump and voted down ballot Republican uh, in the last election. I I do not understand why the fight later is going to be easier than the fight now. In fact, I think it's quite possible, and I thought more about this after the show yesterday, it's the unfortunate reality of being a radio host is you end up thinking about your show all the time, even when you're not on the air, that it's not going to be easier in the future. Why would it be? How will it, how will it shake out that there will be a, a point in a, in a matter of months when all of a sudden the Republicans develop a backbone, a collective backbone, dare I say? The parts of this that they tell us are good. The $19.9 billion in increased military spending, uh, the school choice funding. Uh, there are a few other areas. These are not places where the Trump administration has much of a conflict with the Democrats. Democrats to care, care about spending only when it comes to the military, and they do that so that they have leverage over Republicans on other issues of spending. And it should be noted that spending is just a question of your money. It is It is putting financial obligations on you, the taxpayer. The government does not have any money. I'm fascinated to see all of the analysis out there, especially if you turn on MSNBC and just put on your put on your hammer and ha- hammer and sickle pin when you do. But if you turn on MSNBC, you'll hear people talking about how expensive the tax cut that Trump proposed is and how this is just going to be too expensive. And I just want to say, what's expensive are taxes because it's our money. Uh, if, in fact, we're going to have a shortfall based on future budget projections, maybe it's time we address the shortfall instead of pretending that if we maintain taxes even at their current level, it will be enough. This doesn't change anything. 
really, this budget, back onto the, the budget for a second, or the, this bill, it's a continuing resolution. I know it's not even a formal budget. It's, we haven't had a formal budget in a long time. This is just keeping the government funded for a period of time. And there's nothing really in this to get all that, uh, to get all excited about. And I do ask, how much different would it be? How different would it be if the Democrats were in charge? It's a fair question to ask. We have started to enter the phase of, okay, not Hillary is not enough, meaning that not Hillary is still a good thing for me, but it's not the only thing. I would have liked to have seen uh, more. I would have at least preferred the Republicans make some noise about how they will fight over this. I believe it was a few weeks ago I said, look, there's. let, let me just cut to the chase. I said it on this show or... I, said it on Fox News or one of the two, uh, that this is the, the government's going to be funded and it's going to be the budget that more or less had been planned all along because spending money on stuff, the government spending money on stuff is popular. They've created this illusion that we have an endless supply of money and that it doesn't hurt any of us, that there's no cost to us to spending. Now, they won't all openly say that. And in fact, some Republicans, when they're running for re-election in their districts, will talk a tough game about how, oh, I know, financial Armageddon is coming our way. We're going to be way past our financial obligations. It'll be unsustainable. We'll be so in debt that nobody will believe we could ever even begin to pay it back. In fact, the rest of the productive economy will be crowded out by interest payments on the debt. Or aspects of the economy will be... People will say this, and then they never do anything when they have the power. And it might be worth also asking, how much of this can be blamed on the Congress versus how much of this is blamed on, well, the American electorate? We put these people in positions of authority in D.C., and we will punish them for doing what we say we want them to do. This has become the big game, right? We're we're supposed to think that it's just because Republicans, in particular, forget about Democrats. For I, I can't speak for the Democrats. I, well, I, mean, I, I know why they do what they do, but that's a, that's a separate issue. They're not even pretending to be tackling the, the debt or the deficit. They just figure that the rich will pay more, right? Just keep the class warfare, class envy stuff going, and everything else. All the rest of the details will fall into place. They, they don't really matter. But Republicans say they care about this, that the spending is too much, that they can't continue at the current rate, that we will reach the edge of the cliff. And if we keep going, we'll be over the cliff. And that's a bad thing. That sounds scary, doesn't it? But they never do anything about it. In fact, the sequestration that was enacted some time ago was pretty promptly abandoned. So a decrease in the level of increased spending going forward was too painful for Republicans in Congress to accept. That is how dire things have become, my friends. Uh, it is a an arms race of who can spend the most in such a way that they get the maximum political benefit out of it. And that's where we are. I, I've heard uh, I've heard. Vice President Pence on this one of, of the Democrats, of course, are s- screaming that how successful they are in this. And I think they're overplaying their hand. I think Pelosi and Schumer and the others are making it sound like it's much better for them than it is. But you either believe that at some point this all comes crashing down or you don't. And if you don't, I just want to want to ask why only 20, 20 billion more for the military? Why not 100 billion more? 
Uh, why stop at 20? And the $1.5 billion that we have for border security, which will go to some level of uh, technological enhancement and repair of existing fences in some uh, very minimal areas of the existing fence, uh, that's that's not what was promised. That's not what we were supposed to get. So I, I don't want to pretend that this is a, or I, I don't want to suggest that this is a, a huge loss. It's terrible. Oh, woe is me. This isn't skies falling down stuff. But if we're not going to hold our own side to account now, if we're not going to look at Paul Ryan and those who enable this continued, well, this Republican business as usual in D.C., when are we going to do it? Others have been pointing out as uh, as they look at this that it is always the next time. We, we're always going to fight the next time around. Right? Uh, we're, we're always going to make a stand when the, the battle is more favorable. Now, if you are somebody who uh, either reads Sun Tzu or likes to refer to 80s Wall Street movies where they reference Sun Tzu, uh, the Chinese military tactician, Every battle is won before it is ever fought, right? That's really all you have to know, by the way. You can read The Art of War or you can just listen to me. Every battle is won before it is ever fought. And then there are corollaries and and uh, subheadings of that very famous line, that, that quote. But if you always use that as a mechanism to avoid battle, well, then you're just, you're just losing slowly. <laughs> because if you never fight, you can never win. It's one thing to say the terrain is bad, this isn't the time. It's another thing to always say the terrain is bad, this isn't the time, because then you're just losing without conceding that reality. And I think on uh, some of these issues, that is, uh, with Republicans, that's what we see going on here. Maybe it'll get better. Maybe there's some uh, future circumstance where the Republican Party does coalesce and with, with Trump at the forefront, in the ideological vanguard, or forget the ideological vanguard even, just at the tip of the spear in the fight against the media and the prevail- prevailing narrative on all this stuff, they will be willing to uh, meet the opposition, the Democrats, and engage them and try to win. But that is not what happened here with this spending bill. The Senate's going to pass this thing. There are no surprises here. There's nothing that we should get particularly energized about one way or the other. Um, it's, it is status quo and that should be problematic when the whole purpose of the administration and, and the promise made by Republicans who were either running for reelection or wanted a first shot at all this was that it wouldn't be status quo. And we go back to draining the swamp. It's still really swampy. This doesn't do, this doesn't drain anything. Um, and I, I wonder why we're supposed to believe that that would be different in the future. Now, Trump has mentioned a couple of things that I brought up also on the show yesterday. For example, they could um, uh, they could change the Senate rules. Right? We, we, we can push for a supermajority and hope that in the midterms we get that. I still believe that that wouldn't even be enough, that there'd be Republicans. Look at what's going on with health care. There'd be Republicans for whom the numbers are never enough. It doesn't matter. They would find some excuse to not stand with their fellow Republicans on these issues. Uh, But getting rid of the filibuster in the Senate, that would be an interesting, interesting choice. Uh, It's already happened now with Supreme Court nominees. I did a a somewhat detailed but short history of the filibuster for you here on the show. 
it's not nearly as essential. It's, it's not nearly as much a, a fundamental bedrock constitutional principle uh, to Democrats when they're in power as it is all of a sudden when Republicans have the majority. And, of course, it is not a fundamental principle. It's not even in the Constitution. It's not mentioned. It's just a rule created by the Senate. Uh, I, I would like to think that we realize that the Trump administration has to have results. They have to do things. This is supposed to be a disruptive presidency. There should be a willingness to take political risks because it is only by taking political risks and shaking up the system and refusing to accept the status quo that the profound economic and other changes that we were promised for many months now can come to fruition and then you might have a second term and you could have a second uh, conservative renaissance in the mold of a, of a Reagan era. But if you don't do the big stuff, you're never going to get there. We already know the media is completely opposed to Trump. We know they're doing everything they can to make as many Americans as possible already doubt that there's a an effective plan for the Republicans here anywhere. So blowing up the Senate rules would be one way of going about that. I'm not nearly as put off by that as some of my fellow conservative uh, writers and and all the rest. I seem to, I, I think that if, if that's what it takes in order to get major legislation through, it's completely legal if they change the rules of Senate. It's constitutional. There's no problem with it. Uh, so do we think the Democrats wouldn't do it if the if the shoe was on the other foot? So I have to ask why. So uh, this is where we are on this one point one trillion dollar spending bill. Didn't really do much. Didn't really do much for the uh, conservatives that want results from this administration. It's too soon to say it's a failure. It's too soon to say that this isn't going to all work out. I know all of that. But this wasn't encouraging. Um, and I think that we can at least all agree that there's going to have to be a close eye kept on the government and what they're up to and what the plans are going forward here. Uh, never mind the big talks about entitlement reform. And I, I, I guess we've just forgotten about all that. I mean, we're talking about much smaller stuff than what is really needed to save the economy from uh, eventual meltdown. But we can't, we're, we're not going to get there if we can't even get to, hey, we can fund that wall, right? The wall's going to get funded. We're going to do that. That was a that was a very important promise made all along during the campaign. So I, I want to talk to you, by the way, about the uh, hearings today with uh, FBI Director Comey. We'll get into some of that. I have uh, lots of thoughts on that one. We will also uh, be joined by some fantastic guests over the course of the show to address any number of issues. Uh, Health care, I think, will have to be up next. Then we'll get into the Comey hearing. If uh, you have any thoughts about what went down today on Capitol Hill, 844-900-2825. Are you in wait and see? Are you disappointed? Or are you like, no, making America great again is going to take some time. Just just be patient. All, all acceptable answers. I'm just curious to know what you think. Uh, we'll hit a break here and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. We've got Bob in Virginia on WPTI on the line. What's up, Bob? Hey, Buck. Thank you for taking my call. Appreciate it. Thank you for calling. Um, I'm going to agree. I'm, I'm going to agree with you. I'm tired of the status quo. Let's just wait. Uh, I voted for the man. Uh, I like what he comes out and says things, uh, taking on things and 
I think that has made certain people rise to the occasion. Uh, Now I'm looking at the curb, and, you know, there really isn't much to uh, choose anymore. You got Democrats who are totally, I don't know what their world is. And uh, if Donald uh, is is starting to turn a little to be uh, the politician, that scares me. And uh, getting a third party in to do anything is just impossible the way this game is rigged. So uh, uh, he loses my type. He's got problems. He's got real problems. Why are we supposed to think it's a, it's a good budget? This is what I, I've heard uh, some of the spokespersons, the administration out there. I've heard Mulvaney and I've heard um, uh, Vice President Pence and, and their explanations for why this is so good. Uh, their, their main thing seems to be $20 billion in additional spending for the military, but that, that's not, uh, you know— that, that, that's not something that a lot of people that were worried about jobs and the economy. I mean, yeah, it helps people in the, in the military. It, it helped with military pay, to be sure. But there's a whole lot of other stuff out there as well in the budget. And that, that doesn't get anything. Uh, and there was no there wasn't even a fight, Bob. I mean, they didn't make what was the public case? What was the it seemed like this was all done behind closed doors. Democrats and Republicans came together and they're like, all right, this is what we're going to do. Everyone's fine with this. There, there was no there was no fiery exchange there was no uh we're gonna we're gonna defund Planned Parenthood I mean at at what point do we say you're not allowed to lie to us anymore well that's the key point you know you're used to the Donald coming back and shooting back right off and going at you and he was not really in the scene at all and that's what worries me I don't know if they got him tapered down there in the big house but uh you know I love when he starts you know making the comments because uh I called in last week. You had a uh, substitute in, and I thought he did a great job. And I told him, I said, Donald loves. You want to dance? Let's dance. And I think we got to get back to that again. I'm I tired. hear you. Bob, thank you, man. Look, I, I, Don, Donald's supposed to be the guy who is in there fighting, and there was not a fight on this. And the budget's in, this is important. How the government's spending your money matters. The priorities matter. Uh, Sean in North Carolina, welcome to Freedom Hut, sir. Hey, I'm- How's it going, Buck? Appreciate the show. Thank you. Um, I guess the thing that's kind of frustrating about the whole budget is that you got these small factions inside the Republicans in the House, you know, that kind of do each other in. You got rhinos and then you got Freedom Caucus guys. So, you you know, you can't ever get the votes to push something along because one of the two smaller groups that's big enough just to derail it derails it. It'd be nice to see them come together and actually do something instead of, you know, shooting each other in the foot and then walking off with no solution. Well, you've got this whole faction now of, of moderate Republicans on health care, and I'll be talking about that coming up here in just a minute. Uh, but <laughs> why, you know, the Democrats were able to all come together without, you know, any exceptions and just in lockstep vote for Obamacare, this massive entitlement and this government uh, takeover of much of the healthcare market, not all of it, uh, but a lot of it. And the Democrats just did it. And with Republicans, we've got all these people that are squabbling. And I, I wonder myself, why are Democrats so good at just doing what needs to be done? Whereas Republicans, it seems, uh, just can't get out of their own way. So, uh, Sean, I, I, I agree. It, it's it's just frustrating. But I want to thank you for calling in, sir. I want to talk about uh, health care and where we are on that because there's some updates. And then we'll get into the uh, Comey hearings down on Capitol Hill and a lot of other fun stuff. So stay with me. He spreads freedom. 
because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. Well, we are going to get the health care bill. Hopefully, uh, we're informing a few other members to get a few more to yes. Uh, obviously, the Democrats are not helping us on any of that, so it makes every yes vote critical and every no vote critical. And so I believe I, that we I get health care this well, we, we, we may be at 22 no's, but I think a couple of those uh, are looking at specific issues within their district. You know, I think the odds are still better than 80% that we still have a vote this week, and uh, I'm optimistic that we're going to get it done. They say there's going to be a health care vote. Maybe. Probably. Eh, possibly. I'm not sure which of those is most accurate yet. Here's the, the first of all, we don't know what's really in this this newest version um maybe in, unless it's just the text has been released in the last couple of hours and i should note because i like to be consistent and uh, and accurate and, and fair about things although it's fun to just always stand up and talk about it. everything democrats do is terrible and everything republicans do is awesome that works for some other people but uh, it's not how i not how i roll uh, this is being done without a whole lot of transparency, and given that it's health care, I would think that we should be allowed to know more about this than we do. Uh, I'd like to know the specifics of how this is all supposed to work. But the the fight so far on where this health care bill is has to do uh, with, or the, the center of the fight. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's uh, that's being debated right now. But again, behind closed doors, we don't really even know what it is. There's this $8 billion uh, giveaway they're calling it, or I'm sorry, $8 billion deal giveaway is actually a, what some people are saying it is for the insurance companies, but who knows. Um, but this $8 billion deal out there might get some of the holdout Republicans to go forward on it. The $8 billion is for shoring up the high-risk pools that would be allowed to exist in states that under this new health care regime, the American Health Care Act, I guess it will be called, uh, have decided to relieve themselves of the Obamacare uh, minimum uh, minimum or essential benefits, right? Essential benefits coverage, which is the minimum coverage that has to be given in every state for a, a legal health care plan. So if they decide that they don't want to be covered under that uh, regime, if they don't want to deal with with essential benefits as defined under the Affordable Care Act, they can set up a high risk pool. Because, and I, I know this is this is really important, but I know it's a little like, wah, 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 wah. I, I, and I worry when we talk about healthcare. I spent so much time reading about this today, and I I worry that I sounded a little bit like the, the what is it, the mom from uh, Charlie Brown? Wah, 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 wah. But no, it really matters. It really matters a lot. Um, I I don't think there's a person listening to this right now who hasn't had the experience of getting sick and being nervous about how expensive it'll be to deal with it. Uh, having a loved one whose bills are piling up and they feel like they're not in control, they don't know what to do. Uh, unable to see the doctor they want to see because not in uh, the proper network. By the way, total aside from all this, the uh, studies that I've seen recently on how many second opinions from doctors lead to different to a differential or different diagnosis than the first is like staggering. The doctor you see really matters. I think we're we're start. We've been told for a while that oh no, the MDs, America, are great great healthcare system. Yeah, the doctor you see doesn't matter. If you have strep throat, particularly, because it's a pretty straightforward, you know, you got a test and they give you an antibiotic. It's pretty straightforward. But 
when you go in there, you've got a problem and it's a serious one or it's a, a, a hard to diagnose one, the doctor matters and you should have choice in this. You should be in control of where your own healthcare dollars are going and how it's being spent and, and you're not. But okay. Um, I just wanted to say that everyone listening has dealt with healthcare in a way that is stressful, that is problematic, that annoys them, that is kept them up at night, maybe they've dealt with the bills. So this is, you know, I, I understand that it's it's one thing to talk about how we're gonna we're gonna defeat ISIS. We're gonna have the money to defeat ISIS now, and that's great. Fine. Um I'm all for that. Right. But uh, when it comes to healthcare, this is these are things that will affect you in your day-to-day right now, um, as soon as this bill is passed. So it's important it's important, I think, to understand the mechanism. What the what the Obamacare law did when it came to pre-existing conditions was to say that there was no more they could no longer differentiate between somebody who had a serious pre-existing condition or any pre-existing condition and the rest of the healthcare pool. They couldn't charge them more money. So now you have somebody who's obviously going to have a much higher healthcare cost than the rest of the pool who is being treated like everyone else. And this is largely a moral argument more than an economic argument, right? Okay. So they, in the American Health Care Act, I think that's what they're calling this version of it, but whatever, it doesn't matter. The, the Republican GOP, it's not repeal and replace, right? So we can stop saying that. It's the, the new health care bill, uh, which has not had particularly good branding or marketing. Uh, it, it says that, well, states can get away from that. Uh, from from community rating, from treating everybody in an insurance pool as though they are the same risk, i.e. they're going to have the same health care costs. They can charge people different amounts, but they also would be able to then have these separate pools you'd buy into. So if you had, uh, I, I, I don't know, a, a chronic lifelong disease, you would be covered under the high-risk pool. That, that's where you would get your insurance. Now, how good would that be? And this is all, these are all open questions, my friends. Um and the issue is, well, how do you pay for that? Uh, and so now they're saying there's $8 billion going into this, and that might get it done for now. By the way, $8 billion will not be enough just because whatever the number is the government tells you in, in a case like this will be enough. It, it is never enough. Um, there are, are independent studies out there that say that just shoring up high-risk pools in states um, would be more like $20 billion a year. Some people say it'd be more like, you know, a lot more than that. I mean, the truth is nobody really knows. That That's the real honest answer. It will be expensive, though. It will be expensive. And it also blurs the lines between what is insurance and what is care. If somebody has a pre-existing condition, you know that as, from an insurance risk perspective, uh, they're going to have very costly medical bills. And you, you know this up for, now. There are different levels of pre-existing conditions. And, you know, I've heard crazy stories. I had somebody tell me recently that, you know, they were supposed to have their tonsils out, but the, the company, their healthcare company said, well, no, you, you had like a, a throat infection 10 years ago, and so it's a pre-existing condition. I, you know, who knows, right? I mean, there's a whole swath. There's a wide array of what, ex- what could be a pre-existing condition. Um, but this is where the, the battle is being waged right now. And I have to say that this just goes to show you, one, how smart the Democrats were in their selling of this originally, that by making Obamacare is going to be health care for everybody and we're going to cover pre-existing conditions. That's that's a, a, an effective sales pitch. Now, it's not true. You're not going to have more coverage that's better. Or sorry, cover more people at a better level of coverage at a cheaper cost. That was the that was one of the 
summaries of what Obamacare was supposed to give you and me and everybody else, and that did not happen. Or it was supposed to create that in the individual market, and then it would be replicated in the overall market where you get your insurance, where I get my insurance, um, you know, from your employer, from the employer market. Uh, and because the individual market has had so many problems and healthcare companies that are pulling out, not providing, not, not offering insurance plans anymore, and all the switching that's been going on, they've been stalling on, on bringing this to to bear on the uh, employer market too. Um, but the, the fight over pre-existing conditions is, is interesting because it's a, an emotional and a moral argument instead of a purely economic one because people with pre-existing conditions are going to be more expensive. Now, whether they can come up with an effective mechanism to, in any state to handle those with pre-existing conditions and give them adequate care is going to be, I think, a much more uncertain question that a lot of Republicans right now be willing to, to say. This is all going to be very expensive. And ultimately, we're moving away. We've been moving away from this is what the market will bear or this is how uh, the market uh, would handle this issue to this is what we think is right. This is what we think is fair. And it should be noted that in a in a week where you had a very um, here, let me actually you can hear it from uh, from the man himself. This is Jimmy Kimmel on his son being born with a congenital heart condition. And it's a look, it's a very compelling uh, story. It's heartfelt. Uh, I have tremendous sympathy as 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 everybody listening to tremendous sympathy uh, for him and his family, and, and of course his his newly born child. Um, but I'm going to talk about the policy implications of this in a second, because there are because he explicitly ties it to policy, so it it matters to all of us in a political sense, and not just a or in a policy sense, and not just in a we want the best for him and his and his child and his family, which of course we do. Um, and I, here's what he had to say: uh, for we were brought up to believe that we live in the greatest country in the world. But in, until what, a few years ago, millions and millions of us had no access to health insurance at all. You know, before 2014, if you were born with congenital heart disease like my son was, there was a good chance you'd never be able to get health insurance because you had a pre-existing condition. You were born with a pre-existing condition. If your parents didn't have medical insurance, you might not live long enough to even get denied because of a pre-existing condition. If your baby is going to die, and it doesn't have to, it, it shouldn't matter how much money you make. I think that's something that, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or something else, we all agree on that. I saw a lot of families there, and no parent should ever have to decide if they can afford to save their child's life. It, it just shouldn't happen. Not here. That's the that's the center of the discussion right now. Um, the the point that he's making there, which is about pre-existing conditions, and the moral and ethical obligation to care for those in this country who, who have them, uh, versus the economic mechanisms that would be most efficient that could be put in place. That of course would mean that people would have uh, would be paying more if they had pre-existing conditions, and and this is where the reality of the, the financing of these of uh, of care runs into what the American people want for their uh, fellow fellow Americans. The, the truth, of course, is that you cannot be under law. You cannot be denied life saving care. This is why emergency rooms, for example, have to treat anybody who comes in. Doesn't matter uh, where they're coming from or what they're whether they're able to pay or not. Um, but you also then look at what this means 
in cases where there's going to be many future medical bills as well and and who's going to who is going to pay for that i mean this gets this gets complicated this gets difficult very quickly and i would just say that uh republicans are going along on this one so far and saying that we're going to have states that are able to set up these high risk pools um questions that i would want to have answered like are those high risk pools going to have access to doctor networks that are sufficient to treat the chronic medical conditions that will come up and uh, come up as a result of people being in these high risk pools of course i mean from you know this that there are going to be people that need a lot of care that are in those pools i i'm not sure that they've really thought all of that through i think right now they feel like there's just pressure to get a bill passed and so they want to do something and they're negotiating they're going to pass this if they can they're going to vote on this thing i don't think it'll happen this week but they're saying it might happen very very soon uh but they put they put in place the mechanism for high-risk pools. They say there will be money given for those pools. Um, we shall see if they, well, one, if they actually vote on it and get it through, and two, whether whether it works or not, because uh, Americans are, I, 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 you see the support for covering people with pre-existing conditions, and it, it is bipartisan. Once you get into the who pays for it, everybody agrees you should get treatment, but who should pay for it? Who should pay? It's a, It begins to be a tough question. And by the way, a lot of the health, and this is not about pre-existing conditions so much as just general health care spending. It's about chronic conditions. Many of many chronic conditions have a tremendous um, uh, lifestyle component to them, right? Whether whether it's uh, about, well, any, any number of things, smoking, eating, and all, all kinds of decisions that are made on a daily basis can contribute to chronic health conditions. Though that's where a lot of the Money in all of this goes in, in our healthcare system, dealing with long-term chronic health conditions. And if if there's no incentive uh, in the marketplace at all, if everyone is treated as though they're exactly the same for the purposes of insurance, what are the long-term consequences of uh, choosing unhealthy activities? You know, what does that mean for people as well? If if, if being some if being a uh, for example being a smoker, something that traditionally is asked on on health insurance forms, and I think you can even lose your policy if you lie about it. Um, if th- if those decisions don't matter anymore, that has a long term impact on not just health costs, but on the activities that might lead to very unfortunate and, uh, in some cases, even deadly health outcomes. So, we we are just beginning now, I think, on the Republican side to tackle the realities of what this replacement bill really are and we got to see it when they get this through trump has said it's going to be great he won't sign it unless it's great he won't allow us to be let down on this one we will see i am hopeful but i am not sold yet See a poll here says that uh, 70 percent of of americans is an abc washington post poll Take that for uh, whatever you think that's worth. But 70% of people, um, in uh, according to this poll, believe that there should be uh, mandatory coverage of, of pre-existing conditions. And before anyone, uh, I, I, I know it, it doesn't sound very free market, right, to sit here. and But, of course, you know, it's also, you know, we, we do make some concessions that the market doesn't determine everything. I mean, you would, for example, not hear, I would think, any any conservative saying, well, you know, when you arrive at an emergency room, it is a goods for services transaction. And if you don't have money and you can't prove you could pay, you know, 
Somebody else is going to have to deal with that gunshot wound for you. I mean, that, there we do understand that there are places where it's not just about uh, the upfront dollars and, and cents, right? We, we know that. So um, on the pre-existing condition side of things, there are uh, you've got Donald Trump. I was going to say there are plenty of people on the right. Donald Trump himself is saying there'll be coverage for them. So everyone's agreeing they're going to be covered or saying that it will be covered. Um, I do have some other thoughts on this, though, and then we're going to talk about Comey and uh, Hillary and Russia and Huma. Oh, my. Coming up here in just a few minutes. So uh, I want to switch off the health care stuff. But no- notice how this is a multi-thousand page bill that's been in place for seven years. And we're all just fighting over this one or right now, I should say, at least. We are focused on this one aspect of it about pre-existing conditions, which I think affects like 4% of the, which is a, a substantial number of people, but of the overall healthcare market, it's pretty small. Um, it's pretty, it's a small percentage. I mean, 96% of people do not have what would be considered, uh, I believe at least, the numbers that I've seen today uh, would not be considered a pre-existing condition. So if you're only dealing with, with that, you know, if you're creating an exclusion there whereby people that have that um, aren't going to be charged what would be a market rate, you're going to silo them into these uh, high risk pools that will allow for coverage irrespective of their um, irrespective of their condition. Then we, we start to get into, OK, well, h- how much coverage, what level of coverage, all of that will be determined um, by the government. But And make no mistake about it, this was the issue that helped the Democrats get Obamacare through. And they've been hoping up to this point, I believe, that it's the same issue, pre-existing conditions, that would prevent the Republicans uh, from being able to dismantle Obamacare. I'm not even sure. I've started to see some rumblings here and there from conservatives that 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 have been pushing for repeal for years now that, well, you know, repeal was never really going to happen. I'm like, hmm? I don't. I don't remember. I don't remember that being part of this. I, I thought repeal and replace was what we said it was, but uh, right now it looks like we are doing more shifting around instead of going in there with a chainsaw and really uh, getting rid of this massive law. Which, for most people that are affected by it, and for the health market overall, it is a disaster. If you have to get an Obamacare plan, it tends to be a very bad plan. And in terms of cost for the rest of the healthcare market, it just drives them up, uh, despite all the stuff you've heard of the contrary. But let's talk about uh, Comey and the rest in just a few. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. He was asked a whole bunch of questions about a lot of different things. And the most interesting part of all of it uh, was, well, involved Anthony Weiner. Who who would have thought? Anthony Weiner once again comes up as an issue in all of this. Uh, so he, here's what happened. And, and I have to tell you, this is, I, I used to have a clearance. I worked for the CIA and I uh, am no longer there and I've been out long enough now that, you know, fortunately it's, you know, I don't, I don't remember much, if any, of the stuff that would have been, uh, all, would have been sensitive. You know, I've, I, I've, I've had some time to, to, to move on into other things in my life, which is great. Um, but I can tell you uh, that 
the defense of Hillary Clinton on all this stuff is just amazing to me. Uh, they, you know, that they have offered up this explanation of her actions and her top aides' actions as somehow just all innocuous and not a big deal. I am sympathetic as anyone who is honest, I think, at least, and and fair-minded about these matters uh, should be and, and usually is. I am sympathetic to accidents happen. Accidents with classified do... And I know some of you are like, oh, fuck, I can... No, I, I, within reason, minor things, uh, it, it, it's something even really classified or not that, that is written or that is said. There is a gray area. That's all. That, that can be true. Um, but hundreds of times it is not true, meaning hundreds of times it is negligence. And as we know in the Espionage Act statute, gross negligence is all that is required for there to be criminal culpability. Uh, so... They create this other standard, uh, and this is not new, by the way. None of this is new, but to hear it reiterated for us once again uh, is, it, it was just, it was a wow moment for me. I have to be honest with you. This is what we're being told. And, and then to be told that Huma Abedin was forwarding on, what um, was forwarding on her classified, or forwarding on classified information to Anthony Weiner who has no clearance and no need to know and no uh, justification for seeing this legal justification for having access to or seeing this information whatsoever, that Huma Abedin is forwarding... Well, I mean, here, here's what Comey said. Let's hear it. You agree with me that Anthony Weiner of 2016 should not have access to classified information? Uh, yes, that's a fair statement. Yeah, that's a fair statement. So here's what here's what ABC News uh, wrote on this one, um, and it is I, I don't know how else we okay here it is the emails Comey was referring to it as October 28th notification he sent to Congress were found on former New York Representative Anthony Weiner's laptop former Clint uh, former Clinton State Department aide Huma Abedin's estranged husband Comey revealed today that Abedin appeared to have a regular practice of forwarding classified emails to Weiner. According to Comey, Abedin would send them to Wiener so he could print them out as a matter of convenience, and then she could deliver them to Clinton. Comey said the FBI completed the investigation to Abedin and couldn't prove there was any criminal intent. We didn't have any indication she had a sense of what she was doing was in violation of the law, Comey said. Like I was telling you, I'm sympathetic to an honest mistake, or I'm I'm sympathetic to the gray areas because those of you who have worked with classified know that's a real thing. It exists. Uh, both mis- honest, uh, you know, good faith errors, as well as the gray area of, you know, I mean, I can tell you the government thinks some things are classified that are just not classified. Like no sane, normal, rational person would be like, oh, yeah, that's classified information. But the government will say it's classified. The government does wildly overclassify information, too, as a, as a regular occurrence. And also, uh, you know, you, you'll have times when the government will have somebody from the government speaking about an issue who, who has access and who has classified access, but if they're, they're very senior. But then if somebody else speaks about it, they'll be like, oh, no, you can't do that. Or, you know, well, but it's already been talked about, like, by the president or by somebody else. Can, can I talk? Oh, no, it's still classified. Wait, wait, what? They don't They're trying to deal with information control in a digital era. And it's it's very hard. And they're also trying to deal with information control in a free society. And that's very hard. Um. But there's got to be an objective or a, a straightforward standard on this stuff. 
By the way, there was nothing worthwhile to hear about the Russia investigations today. That was billed as going to be a big deal, and there was not. He's basically like, "Yeah, we're you know, we'll let you know." There's nothing on that, so we can just, um, I may maybe give you a little more than that in a second. But the Huma stuff was much more interesting to me because you have to, for there to be no criminal intent, you'd have to believe that. Look, if it was once or twice, there was an email that had a low level of classified information that slipped into it. I, I, I'm not, I'm not saying it's okay, but I'm saying you know that's something that you would be. Uh, you'd be disciplined for, but you're you're not going to be spending a long time in prison for it. That's just that's again re- reality. But how many times did this happen? And we're really to believe it. She has, she has no. She's not reading these emails. And why she's? I mean, she's sending them to Anthony Weiner. They're they're for Hillary Clinton. She never stopped to think that maybe something was seeping into these emails that shouldn't have been. You know, this is Secretary of State. This isn't some low level person. Here's what really frustrates me about all of this. A lot of things do, I should, but here, here's one part of this that I just can't get past right now. Um, the Hillary defense, which is also now the Huma defense, the FBI is going to give the benefit of the doubt to uh, an individual on, nas- on, the na- on national security uh, breaches, on, on a breach of national security, because... They didn't intentionally want to do this or it wasn't there wasn't criminal intent. There wasn't mens rea, criminal state of mind. That's a that's actually a, a absent the gross negligence aspect of this, which I think when you've got hundreds of emails or over 100 emails that are classified, whatever the number is, uh, then then I think you're at gross negligence. But. A criminal uh, state of mind standard, meaning that you knew what you're doing is wrong, you did it anyway, and and there was a harm or or the possibility of real harm from it. Um, that's that's reasonable for me, but they won't give that to other people. This is a Hillary specific, a Hillary and her aides specific defense, and when we see such a high profile case like this for reasons of obvious politics, not being treated the way other cases like this would be treated. And there would be no, remember, there was no penalty, no sanctions of any kind against Hillary for this activity, for this action. It's not even like she took some plea, you know, some plea deal and is on probation for a year or something. Nothing. Nothing. Didn't have to face justice at all. And was able to be, she was able to run for president of the United States while she was under investigation for what could have been felony violation. I mean, they were felony violations. They just didn't prosecute them because it's like she didn't know or she didn't mean to. And then we get to the, well, once, maybe, but a hundred times? If a hundred times isn't gross negligence, what is gross negligence? And I just, I just think about my uh, you know, former colleagues in the intelligence community and, and members, uh, members of the military that have access to classified, that have clearances, and the psychological burden that that really is, that you have to always be so mindful of everything all the time, and you have to be protecting that information, and and I understand that that is the responsibility that you, you sign up for, but it's also uh, creates its own anxieties and its fears. And we all know that we won't get the Hillary. We won't get the Hillary treatment. Right. You're, you're not going to send 100 classified emails or have 100 classified emails on your server or, you know, in your email account at home. And it results in nothing. Uh, maybe you throw yourself on the mercy of the court and, you know, you, you don't go to prison for a very long time. But. We all know that's not going to be nothing when you have such a high profile case and it seems like there are two justice systems in place, one for the powerful and another one for the rest of us. It undermines the it undermines the integrity of the entire 
uh, criminal justice system, which is what's happened here. And it shows us that the Clintons once again are above the law. And I, I know this isn't new, but me, meaning that these arguments aren't new. We know we've known this about Hillary. We know about the meeting uh, that occurred. And uh, now, though, we see that, you know, Huma was a part of this and she's sending emails to Anthony Weiner. He's printing them out. I mean, they just didn't care. They thought they they thought they were above the law. And the very unfortunate conclusion that anybody would come to here is that I guess they were. Because they broke the law repeatedly, certainly in a negligent fashion. I also think, by the way, they just they knew and didn't care, and they figured they were above it. Which I mean, there was criminal intent. They were violently on it and didn't care. There's no confusion. There's no oh, maybe is this classified? Is this not classified? I, I don't believe that happened all the times that this occurred with them. Right? Like I said, if it could happen once, I mean, I could sit here with you and you know we could talk about. You, you look at uh, some of the the cases in the past and how the government treats people. They don't give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, you make make a small mistake on this, and all of a sudden you're you're in a whole lot of trouble. Um, Comey also went off on the Lynch meeting, which I thought was interesting. I want to play. This is a little long, so I'll play some of it for you, and then I'll cut it off. But th- this was worth this was worth hearing. Um, what I'm trying to do is say it, it looks like you were trying to provide as much transparency and as much real time information as you had. Yeah. Uh, and this then goes on, to why on Comey November the 6th, told the FBI Congress, apparently yeah. moved heaven and earth and got about something done right before the in a matter of days that they thought was going to take beyond the election. But you were in that pressure cooker. I just wanted to give you an opportunity to glue together, I think, the decision for your actions uh, on July the 5th and, and how I think there's parallels between that and what you ultimately did on uh, October the 28th and then November the 6th. And I'll yep. yield back the remaining of my time for the answer. And I, I – I've lived my whole life caring about the credibility and the integrity of the criminal justice process, that the American people believe it to be and that it be, in fact, fair, independent, and honest. And so what I struggled with in the spring of last year was how do we credibly complete the investigation of Hillary Clinton's emails if we conclude there's no case there? The normal way to do it would be to have the Department of Justice announce it. And I struggled as we got closer to the end of it. He announced it. A number of things had gone on, some of which I can't talk about yet, that made me worry that the department leadership could not credibly complete the investigation and decline prosecution without grievous damage to the American people's confidence in the the justice system. And then the capper was, and I'm not picking on the the Attorney General, Loretta Lynch, who I like very much, but her meeting with President Clinton on that airplane was the capper for me. And I then said, you know what? The department cannot by itself credibly end this. The best chance we have as a justice system is if I do something I never imagined before, step away from them and tell the American people, look, here's what the FBI did, here's what we found, here's what we think. And that that offered us the best chance of the American people believing in the system that it was done in a credible way. That was a hard call for me to make, to call the attorney general that morning and say, I'm about to do a press conference and I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to say. And I said to her, I hope someday you'll understand why I think I have to do this. But look, I wasn't loving this. I knew this would be disastrous for me personally, but I thought this is the best way to protect these institutions that we care so much about. And having done that, And then having testified repeatedly under oath, we're done, this was done in a credible way, there's no there there, that when the Anthony Weiner thing landed on me on October 27th, and there was a huge, this is what people forget, new step to be taken, we may be finding the golden missing emails that would change this case. If I were not to speak about that, it would be a disastrous, catastrophic concealment. 
It was an incredibly painful choice, but actually not all that hard between very bad and catastrophic. So you're saying, I look, we, we couldn't cover Congress up for her. We couldn't cover up the situation. Step. And uh, beyond that, um, <laughs> uh, Loretta Lynch completely tainted the DOJ's ability to, which we all knew beforehand, right? So it was largely, uh, most of the stuff today, other than the Huma sending Anthony Weiner emails to print out for her that had classified information on them, and and somehow there's no, no one's punished. Isn't it amazing? Everybody had a lack of criminal intent here. N nobody was punished. They're, they're, well, I mean, Anthony Weiner, you know, he may, but not about classified emails, um, depending on how those investigations go. But, Nothing. There was. This is a fascinating thing, isn't it? You look at all of the violations that occurred here of handling of classified information repeatedly, flagrantly, consistently, and there was no. It's not that there wasn't a stern enough punishment or enough people weren't. There was nothing. Everybody, there was nothing. While we have to hear about Trump and Russia and how Russia gave him the election, and you know, depending on the day, Comey gave Trump the election, Russia gave Trump the election, Russia and Trump gave. Um, Russia and uh, Comey gave Trump the election or, you know, Trump is a fascist just because it, it doesn't matter. Right. They just change the explanation all the time. But the real story here and the real scandal is that Hillary Clinton was able to get away with all of this w without any consequences of any kind whatsoever. Forget about Russia intervening in our election and causing problems for us. Our own Department of Justice seemed like it was tainted here by doing nothing. The, the amazing part of it is that people believe that Comey cost Hillary the election when in reality, Comey kept Hillary from being indicted. But which is a bigger deal? Well, there we go. See, again, I'm getting all getting all fired up about this one. Um, what did you think about today's hearings? If you saw any of it or Comey or Hillary or any of the rest of it, uh, let me know. 844-900-2825. We'll be right back. Looks like the Republicans are planning on a health care vote. This is the latest on Thursday. So we'll see if they stick to that. Um, but that's the latest. So that would be tomorrow. We'll see if they can finally uh, get this whole health care. Well, what are we calling this? Health care fix, I guess. It's not repeal and replace. This whole health care thing moving in the right direction. Um, meanwhile, back in the land of Democrats and uh, what they're up to lately. First of all, there's this, there's this Obama book out there that I am uh, very interested to read when I get a chance because th this one, well, first of all, there are some reviews of it out there that are scathing, of course, because the, the moment that you, uh, the moment that you begin to criticize Obama you are going to be in a lot of trouble with a lot of book reviewers because they overwhelmingly voted for Obama. This book is called Rising Star. We should try to, this is reminding me now, we're going to try to book this individual, get him on the show. Yes, thank you. We're already in process of doing that. David Garrow is the, is the author of a Rising Star. Um, it was, it's a book that, port, quote, portrays Obama as a man who ruthlessly compartmentalized his existence who believed early on that he was fated for greatness and who made emotional sacrifices in the pursuit of a goal that must have seemed unlikely to everyone but him. Uh, it says that Obama, th this book claims that Obama asked a woman 
uh, was asked a woman to, or was thinking about marrying a woman before he met um, Michelle uh, Obama and married her. Uh, let me see what it says here. I remember very specifically that by 1987, about a year into our relationship, he already had his sights on becoming president. Uh, and then she told Garrow that Obama's resolution of his black identity was directly linked to his decision to pursue a political career. And uh, the review pointed out another book that said at the time it could be seen as a political liability for a black politician in the area to have a wife that was not African-American. Uh, this is all from this. Um, this is all from FoxNews.com talking about this book. I, if this is true, I think it's interesting that we're hearing about this woman uh, that Mich- that Barack Obama was thinking about marrying before Michelle Obama. I think it's interesting we're hearing about it for the first time um, now. Uh, why haven't we heard about this before? I, I, I don't. The, that, that's not a question that I'm leading to a specific answer. With. I'm just saying it seems a little, you know. I would have been curious. There's a lot of biographies and books written about Obama, or autobiographies, biographies. Uh, this is the first time we've heard of um, this this woman, Sheila Mayoshi uh, Jager uh, or Jager. I'm not sure. Um, and, but they were thinking about getting married. Um, uh, I think he asked her to marry him. Right? Is that? Yeah. At, Barack Obama asked a woman to marry him before meeting him. So he asked a woman to marry her. Didn't happen. Look, I'm not trying to pass judgment on the guy's personal life in terms of how who he chose to marry. That that's first of all, you know, I don't know, I don't know him, uh, but I, I will say that this portrait of Obama as so calculating and so concerned with his future political prospects to the point that it even may have affected his decision about who to marry is um, to some of us perhaps it, it is surprising. I don't know. Uh, to others, probably not so much. Uh, but it also seems to me to be kind of kind of sad. I-, I would think that we could just all hope to marry the person that we want to marry without considerations about how the, how it will look in the future, uh, whether we're going to be a politician or a guy who you know owns a local uh, you know grocery store. I, I just it's uh, and something new about Obama I learned here, and I just wanted to say it strikes me as a little depressing. All right, we're going to talk uh, about national security coming up here. Stay with me. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. I am not entertained! The Buck is back. Thanks for staying with me, everyone. We've got uh, Dr. Sebastian Gorka on the line. He is a deputy assistant to President Donald Trump. Dr. Gorka, good to have you, sir. Great to be back. It's been too long. Yes, indeed, sir. Uh, so uh, a lot of a lot of stuff going on in the national security world right now. First, let's just talk North Korea. It's still very much in the headlines. You have people that are uh, concerned about what's going to happen on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, w- what has changed, uh, Dr. Gorka? Why are we seeing so much more about North Korea? Well, uh, because this administration understands just how much of a destabilizing regime we have in North Korea. And we realize that just allowing them to get away with what they're doing and expecting them to behave themselves, the the Obama doctrine of of strategic patience, uh, isn't getting the results that, that we need because they remain a threat. They're not 
standing by the international requirements with regards to weapons of mass destruction, uh, procurement, and also ballistic, missiles te- ballistic missile testing. So that's why we had the Mar-a-Lago summit, and that's why you know, Beijing's attitude to North Korea has changed thanks to uh, President Trump. So you know, there, is an, there is a very serious threat, and this administration isn't going to stick its head in the sand. We're going to deal with that threat. Now, on to the fight against the Islamic State. This is where, in the recent budget deal, um, Vice President Pence and, and others have been out there saying, look, this is, it's essential. We got more money for the, uh, for the military. This will be helpful in a whole bunch of areas, but it'll also be, of course, useful in the fight against the Islamic State, which is ongoing in Iraq, in Syria, in Afghanistan, and, and elsewhere. Uh, what what can we expect as uh, that twenty billion dollars is? It, what can we expect that will do? And and what's the change uh, that we can look for in the fight against the Islamic State in the months ahead? Well, in in, in the so the first thing first, we have to rebuild our military. We have seen uh, absolutely catastrophic degradation of combat effectiveness to such a degree under the last administration that, for example, the Marine Corps had to cannibalize. Uh, functioning aircraft to supply themselves with adequate spare parts for the remaining aircraft they wanted to fly. That is not going to be allowed in the current administration. So first thing first, combat effectiveness. Uh, with regards to uh, what the, the uh, crushing of ISIS that the president has promised, uh, very simply, um, we're going to help our friends and our allies fight their own wars for themselves. So this is not an interventionist administration. We're going to help them, especially our Sunni allies in the region, fight the ISIS jihadi threat in their backyard with advisors, with ISR, with with intelligence support, with trainers. But we're going to take a support role, not a primary role, except for the the, the specific tier one actions that have to be taken against high-value targets. What can you tell us about Russia uh, and Putin seeking the creation of Syrian safe zones? This report about reported in the uh, Wall Street Journal earlier today, uh, saying that there should be a creation of areas to uh, to protect people in Syria, and that will lead to further peacemaking and strengthen the ceasefire regime. Uh, this would include Turkey, the United States, and Russia. What can you tell us about this, uh, Doctor Gorka? Well, we're going to evaluate the uh, suggestions that have been made in the last 48 hours, but there's a deeper question. I think you're already seeing some interesting and and potentially positive signs here. So the the cruise missile strike in Syria, the Moab bomb in Afghanistan, they're not just about Syria. They're not just about Afghanistan. They are, in general, a message about clientism. So when powerful nations support, fund, keep up client states that are not uh, acting in ways that comport with international standards, especially when it comes to weapons of mass destruction or treatment of their own citizens, those nations, whether it's uh, in Asia, whether it's in Europe or the Middle East, have to assess their relationship to their client states. Uh, We've drawn a red line and we have acted on it. Now other nations need to think about their internal red lines and just how far will they support regimes that take unconscionable acts or maintain systems that are simply against all human dignity. That's the calculation that we expect to be happening right now in places like the Kremlin. What can the American people, uh, what should they 
uh, know as the mission in Afghanistan under the Trump administration? What is the strategy and what is the end game here? Because I'm sure you've seen the reports. Well, not never mind just the reports that are out there in the press, but let's we'll focus on those, Dr. Gorka. Uh, the, we, we've seen reports about a, a third of Afghanistan is under the de facto control of the Taliban. We've been fighting there since 2001. You've got the U.S. general in command of ground forces there saying that there may need to be thousands uh, more troops, U.S. troops added into the coalition to stabilize uh, Afghanistan and defeat the Taliban. We're committed to that fight. Will there be more troops? Where is this going? Unlike the Obama White House, we don't give our playbook away. When you sit down at the poker table and show everybody your cards, you're going to lose. The president actually understands that. He is a strategic thinker. He is a negotiator. He is the master of the deal. So we're not going to say uh, what our strategy is. Uh, We'll talk about objectives, and you know better than anyone. You are a former operator. You've worked in the IC. You have to go back to the beginning. Why did we deploy our special operations forces in October of 01 to Afghanistan? There's one specific strategic objective. We wanted to ensure that that country could never, ever be used to launch, to mastermind mass casualty attacks against U.S. citizens in Manhattan, in Washington, and in Pennsylvania. That strategic objective remains. The territory of that nation can never, ever again be used to launch mass casualty attacks like September the 11th here on the soil of the continental United States. One last one for you, Dr. Gorka. The team, uh, the the Trump national security team, has seen some uh, some changes in the early days. Uh, what can you tell us about how uh, those the top pieces in that puzzle, including McMaster and others, are working together and coming together uh, under this administration? Look, uh, it's it's like a fine-tuned machine. I mean, we have um, look at the individuals we have in the cabinet. Look at the people we have in the National Security Council. Uh, you don't, you know, H.R. McMaster's reputation, his CV speaks for himself. Look at the uh, reputations of General Mattis when it comes to the continental U.S. Look at uh, uh, the uh, General Kelly and, and look at Rex Tillerson. I mean, a man who uh, was the head of the corporation that he was head of, he already is a geostrategic player. So if you look at just the personalities we have already, uh, that is literally the A-team. Dr. Sebastian Gorka, Deputy Assistant to President Trump. We appreciate you joining, sir. Good to talk to you. Anytime. Thanks, bud. Uh, team, we're going to hit a break here. 844-900-2825. We'll be right back. So on the one hand, you have the relitigation of why Trump won going on in the press today and, of course, down on Capitol Hill. And it's uh, a lot of, well... The, the pe- people are still very upset. It is safe to say. It is fair to say. People are still very upset about um, what happened here with Trump winning. And those people, I mean media and Democrats, they're very unhappy. It's like, whatever. Like, why did, like, Trump have to win? Because Hillary would have, like, given everybody, like, such, like, good health care and, like, the best stuff. Uh, they're, they're not letting this go. And they... uh uh, they've decided that we have to continuously hear about whether it's uh, from statisticians who will point out why Hillary lost. And it's it's always the 
combination of different factors that are most at work uh, or, or most in play that Hillary had no control of, right? It's, it's not that Hillary was just a bad candidate who made decisions like don't campaign in Wisconsin. That, that can't be the answer. It can't be the Democrats were putting all their hopes and dreams on a deep on a deeply flawed political candidate. Uh, Spicy addressed uh, addressed this issue today in a press conference. Let's, let's hear what the, what the, what Spice had to say about it. Well, look, I'm a Patriots fan, uh, and I think if if games ended in the third quarter, there would be a there would have been a different team here last week. Uh, but you play a game four quarters, you play an election until election day. Um, so, well, with all due respect to her. Uh, that's not how it works. You don't get to pick the day the election's on. Um, it's somewhat sad that we're still debating why the president won uh, in the that he did. I agree. I, we still are at this place where I, I think that there are a lot of Democrats. I don't mean a few. I think there are a lot of liberals out there who cling to this hope that they will wake up and Trump won't somehow Trump won't be president. That This will all have been a, a nightmare for them. And this can be changed around and it can be made to disappear. It can be made to uh, have never really existed or at least not have existed for very long. I don't think that's going to happen. As I love to point out to some of my more extreme leftist friends, you understand that if Trump like were to step down, that Pence would just be the president. And I think you probably could argue that for, for some uh, progressives, Pence might be even worse in some ways. I, I mean, you could make that argument. I don't know if it's true, but uh, so far, Trump has been reasonably centrist on a whole bunch of things, often lost in the he's a fascist, he's Hitler, all the stuff that they say. But uh, he's actually been pretty centrist, if we're going to be fair about this. Um, but uh, while you've got the re- relitigation of the election going on and everything else, you also have, yeah, that's right, the the two most uh, well-known political dynasties in the Democrat side of things, the Obamas and the Clintons, uh, making a comeback of sorts. You've got Barack Obama um, talking about his presidential center in Chicago, which is going to be, quote, more like a campus and a premier institution for training young people in leadership. So does that, by the way, when it, and I, I know it, this might sound more snarky or more uh, more biting than I mean it to. But when he says training and leadership, so there'll be, is this like community organizer stuff or is this just leadership in a very general sense? I always found it fascinating that when you would refer to Barack Obama's community organizer period, when that was his, that was his job, that was his profession or his, his career, depending on who said it, it was a problem. So, you know, if you said, you know, oh, Barack Obama was a community organizer and you're a Republican, people were like, oh, putting down community organizing. It's because you just don't care about poor people and don't want to help them. Uh, but Democrats could be like, yeah, Barack Obama's community organizing days. And it was just, it was understood that where you came from on, uh, where, where you came from politically was completely indicative of how you felt about the community organizing aspect of Obama's background. But so he's got his presidential center. That's going to be happening. That's a thing that's uh, going to be in Chicago. And then you got Hillary back and she's calling herself a part of the resistance um she will be quote acting as a quiet catalyst for favored organizations um i am still going to be watching very closely to see uh, what happens with hillary and the clinton foundation because they're going to have to try to keep this whole thing going for a little while right they can't allow the clinton foundation to just 
collapse into nothingness as soon as she's not going to be president because that would be too obvious and it would damage whatever is left of the of the Clinton brand. Um, but we all know that the Clinton Foundation is never going to be never going to be what it was. So um, that's that's I think an important an important uh, note to keep in mind here as we look at what's going to happen with the Democrats and the and the opposition. They're trying to figure out right now who the primary player will be against Trump and they want to th- they want to think it's Elizabeth Warren but I I don't I mean maybe by default that's what it'll turn into but you know they they're saying maybe Bernie Sanders will run again, you know. Bernie Sanders round 2. Uh I don't see that happening either. I find that to be kind of unlikely, but between the Clintons and the Obamas, uh, you'll see a lot of uh a lot of kingmaker activity, I think, as to who the leader of the Democratic Party is going to be in the future. Um, but just when just when you thought that Hillary would, after acquiring vast riches for doing very little, it should be noted, just when you thought that maybe you wouldn't be subject to Hillary Clinton lectures for the foreseeable future, it turns out that no, actually... Hillary is going to be telling you what's what for a long time. Hillary is going to be pushing uh, pushing hard on uh, any number of ideas that are out there right now. I mean, you're going to hear her talking about uh, progressive feminist ideology. I think that the Hillary loss because of misogyny is one of the more annoying fallback lines that we hear these days that that's still the case um that you'll, you'll be told that well hillary of course lost because of m- misogyny um what the basis is for this i i do not know and if you were to line up if, if you were to be honest about this this is part of the self-contradiction that exists in democrat identity politics right if you lined up the advantages and disadvantages that hillary clinton had being a woman i mean the narrative of first would be first woman president versus the nation's misogyny. Um, I think we could all agree that it's much more compelling. It's much more advantageous to be Hillary. I mean, sorry, to be Hillary Clinton and to try to be the first woman president than it is a drawback. But they still use this this pathetic excuse, and it's comforting, I suppose, to the left. And what you what you get to, what you realize after a while, is that this is all just a function of trying to avoid the possibility that the ideas just weren't that compelling, that whatever Hillary Clinton was running on just it just didn't really uh, didn't really matter to people, didn't grab them, uh, didn't make them think that the government that in so many ways makes our lives these days more difficult and annoying and and troublesome. Um, and, and, and it is troublesome, uh, could make things a bit better somehow or just make things less worse. I, I would take that as well from uh, the government. But Hillary, Barack, they're going to be major figures, despite not uh, holding elected office. They're going to be major figures in the Democratic Party. And uh, I think that we have not seen the last, despite the Comey uh, testimony today and uh, talking about what was done for Hillary by the FBI, by the DOJ. I, I should also note that we just skipped over, or we, we didn't skip over, but that the country is just going to say, yeah, the Loretta Lynch thing with Bill Clinton, that was kind of weird. But, you know, Comey took care of it by giving his own press conference. That was the Attorney General of the United States 
meeting with the husband of a woman who was under investigation for f- multiple felony violations while she was running for president of the United States. If that were in, in an episode in that show, Scandal, that I'm going to pretend that I don't watch, but my girlfriend's made me watch a few episodes of it, I'm not going to lie, I would say maybe the writers have jumped the shark. Maybe they've gone a little too far here with the whole, the president, uh, or I'm sorry, the former president whose wife thinks she's going to be president is meeting with the attorney, I mean, with the attorney general, while there's this investigation going on, I feel like you'd say, no way. That happened, everybody. That went down. That was a thing that was real. Uh, and even you could tell when Comey's talking about today, he's like, I cannot believe that they did that. But, you know, it makes sense. The Democrats, they, they figure as long as they stay in power and you see this. I'm not saying Democrats are dictators, that this is an autocracy or anything, but you see this in a lot of uh, third world countries where the the ruling party, everyone's like, oh, they're they're so sloppy. Why are they being so sloppy in their corruption? And, and then you realize, oh, it's not really sloppy because there's no consequences. So why not be sloppy? Who, who cares, you know, that they're looting the, the treasury and doing all these bad things? Uh, they don't care because they're the ones in control of the justice mechanisms, too. I think Hillary started to feel a little bit like that. More coming. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are gold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Welcome back, team. Uh, I talked to you about May Day earlier in the week and the uh, Haymarket affair in Chicago. In fact, talked to you a little bit of the rise of Chicago, uh, how it, it's a pretty amazing story, how it came to be and how quickly it became a, a major city. Um, all this is to say, and I, I just love making, well, making fun of International Workers Day protests whenever I can because they're just so absurd. Uh, that's that's a, a pastime of mine here in the Freedom Hut. Uh but May's got a few other things that I think of or already that come to mind. Um, I'm sure many of you, of course, know that one of the most famous, uh, well, one of the, one of the more famous paintings of combat atrocity, certainly of all time, is the third is Goya's, uh, the third of May, uh, Francisco de Goya. Uh, a depiction of a battle from the Peninsular War during the Napoleonic Wars. Um, this is one of those historical periods that I think often gets lost. People don't spend much time studying it or talking about it. But it did give us something that stays with us to this day. It is, in fact, from this period of the per, uh, Peninsular Wars, a uh, Peninsular War rather of uh, 1807, 1814, that when Napoleon was fighting against the Spanish, British, and uh, Portuguese for control of, uh, of Spain, that we get the term guerrilla war, little war. Of course, G-U-E-R-I-L-L-A, guerrilla war, uh, comes from the Peninsular War, the Napoleonic War over um, uh, the Iberian Peninsula. And Goya's 3rd of May, uh, I'm sure many of you are conjuring it up in your head, as I even mentioned to you. He painted it in 1808, um, but it depicts, uh, well, the aftermath of the battle at Medina del Rio Seco in Spain, uh, and it's a firing squad, and you have Napoleon's troops 
in a very mechanical fashion. You don't see their faces shooting a, uh, a, a Spaniard who was chosen at random. This is what happened the day after. There was a battle on May 2nd. On May 3rd, Napoleon sent in uh, soldiers to just execute civilians. Um, so uh, Goya's third, we are, it's the third of May and I'm thinking about the painting third of May. That's, uh, that's how we got started on all of this. Um, and it gave us guerrilla warfare. Uh, later on, the term fifth column also comes from a conflict in Spain, in the Iberian Peninsula, but uh, fifth column is a reference to the uh, civil war, the Spanish civil war with Franco on one side and you know, the, the Republicans on the uh, on the other, so uh, that's where we that's where we get the fifth column, but fifth column comes from the Spanish Civil War, and the uh, guerrilla war comes from the Peninsular Wars of Napoleonic era. Just thought you know, a little little fun history. Oh yeah, I got to talk to you about Cinco de Mayo uh, on Friday, and I may even get into my own little incident on campus where we were threatened with being. We're just trying to throw a party, everybody, all right? We're just trying to throw a party. We're going to invite a lot of people. It's going to be fun. There was going to be tequila and also, of course, non-alcoholic beverages. You know, we're going to make, uh, you know, virgin margaritas and such because we want everyone to be able to have fun. Um, but whether we ha- we're going to throw a little Sanco de Mayo party, and things went south. And I got my—as a freshman, I got my first taste of— campus identity politics in a very real way and in a way that uh, was uh, it stayed with me obviously because here we are many years later and I will I will talk to you about that on Friday so maybe we'll do a little quick uh, backgrounder on Cinco de Mayo it is not in fact as many many believe understandably it's like people say well it's, it's the Mexican 4th of July no no that is not what it is uh, it commemorates a specific battle a battle that very few people Outside of Mexico, remember, um, but it is not Mexican Independence Day. But that also uh, ties into why we had a little bit of a problem on campus. Um, you know, I was just those of you who've seen PCU. I was like the Jeremy Piven character. You know, we're not going to protest. Let's just all throw a campus-wide party uh, on Cinco de Mayo, and and it got it got out of, it got a little out of not the party that didn't get out of hand. Unfortunately, that would have been fun. No, the the politics of the campus in response to someone like me wanting to be part of a larger group that was going to throw a Sanco de Mayo party that involved diversity educators, threats of police action, uh, threats of picketing. Oh, all of that. All of that. Yours truly got caught up in it on Sanco de Mayo many years ago. So uh, this Friday we'll have some I'll have to have the team in here remind me that I'll, I'll go into a discourse about what it was like. And I would just note that I'm sure it will be worse today. Whereas then the party was allowed to happen, but only under certain... Con- I'm giving away some of my story now, but there were certain conditions, and we were being watched, and we knew it, and everything else. Um, today, I think that there would there would be a, a shut... There would be like a campus shutdown, a general strike. Everybody would freak out. It would be a big problem. Um, just because we want to throw a party, you know? The party, and there was going to be tequila. Somebody said that maybe they were going to pass out some... You know, there was going to be a passing out of sombreros and, you know, that, oh, cultural appropriation. Anyway... I'm getting getting ahead of myself. That'll have to be on Friday. So this is, gives you all an incentive to listen to the show this Friday for Sanco de Mayo as we talk about what that was like. And if you haven't seen PCU, the movie, I think it holds up pretty well. Um, there's some stuff there that is, well, timely for today's discussions about campus and speech and shutting down speech that people don't like.
Uh, I got a lot of calls in here, and I know I've been rambling on about this. But hey, we learned the, der- the derivation or the origins of the term guerrilla warfare and or guerrilla warfare, uh, and of course, fifth column. So that's always fun. I, li- I like to leave you with, with little tidbits of knowledge. You just drop. You're at a party. Someone's like, oh, you know, it's just like guerrilla warfare over there and wherever. And you're like, do you know where the term guerrilla warfare comes from? Napoleonic Wars, the Peninsular War, in fact, of the early 19th century. Yeah, that's right. You, you become the Dos Equis guy instantaneously when you drop a nugget of knowledge like that one, my friends. Uh Let's take some calls here. Uh, where do we have? Oh, yes. Don in Ohio, WHLO. What's up, Don? Hey, Buck. How are you tonight? I'm good. Thank you for calling good. in. Good. I appreciate it. Hey, I, I just want to talk about this, This uh, what Comey uh, uh, said in testimony today about these emails that got forwarded to Anthony Weiner. Yeah. Um, is that, uh, This is, like, very alarming to me in that, obviously, it was Huma Abedin who sent them. Now, are there is anyone talking about like the ties with her family with the Muslim Brotherhood? She acts, has access and she's forwarding them to her husband. I mean, is there not something nefarious going on here? Or this, is this like treason? Uh, no one, everyone seems to be pointing the finger at at Weiner, but he's it, that's that's to me that's not who we should be looking at here. Do you agree, or am I off base here? Uh, I mean, Wiener's Wiener's got some got a lot of problems apart from all this, as you know, I'm sure. Um, and when you, when you say Wiener's not Wiener's not the guy we should be looking at, I mean that's a whole you know whatever. So on to Huma, <laughs> on to Huma, and the uh, and the emails. Um, I I don't know about Huma's. Uh, you mentioned Muslim. I've heard about this before, but I honestly can't recall what the uh, connections are supposed to be between what is the connection between Huma uh, and the Muslim Brotherhood, either alleged or or proven? What is it? Yeah, something with the, like her parents. They they ran a a, a paper or a periodical, um, and it was like basically I don't know if it was finance or but it was it was a, basically a pro Muslim Brotherhood type um, organization or outfit or whatever. And, and so, like I said, I I that's alleged at this point, but obviously there's enough there's enough smoke and guns there. And the fact that she is the one that took them from Hillary and, and forwarded them to her husband. To, but, just, but it's not a good scheme. Look, if she was going to commit espionage or try to share information to the detriment of the United States outside of, you know, her outside of a, well, her husband or those that she works with. I, I don't think this ties into that. I, I'll be honest with you. I just think that this shows how reckless and uh, detached from their obligations to uh, safeguard classified information Hillary and her top aides were. I just, that's, you know, you're sending this to your husband. You work for the Secretary of State. You're having him print it out so you can give it to her. Uh, never occurred to you that this might be a, a bad plan, a bad protocol. Uh, you know, anyone, Don, who's who's worked around classified will tell you, I think, uh, most people at least that you speak to about it, if, if they'll speak to you about it at all, uh, would tell you that it's you're you're living in like a little totalitarian enclave, right? What you say, what you print, who you talk to, e- even within the government, it's uh, very strict, and uh, you know you have the sort of Damocles hanging over your head all the time with that stuff. So I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's an instance of Huma trying to. I, I don't see the Muslim Brotherhood angle or any of that. I'll but you know I'll think about it, Don. And uh, I appreciate you calling in. Thank you. Shields high. 
Um, by the way, those of you who have been asking about this too, it's some some of you send me. I look, I'm not always that clear in my diction. I understand that, but uh, it's not it's not she's high or you know she's I or whatever. It's it's shields high, like a shield, like on the battlefield and high. And how we got to that and how it became a Team Buck rallying cry. That's a story that I'll get to probably on Friday as well. I'm planning all kinds of fun things for this Friday. I want to really have a a show that is is different from anything you'll hear anywhere else, which I hope is true every day. But uh, we will we'll get into some fun uh, other topics that aren't just about you know Trump and the agenda and healthcare and the stuff that's uh, burning up the news cycle all the time. Let's take Ray in Florida. Ray, good to have you, sir. Hey, um, I got a quickie for a hope. I'm, I'm trying to figure out this uh, shutdown thing, right? Yeah. What it actually, what it actually entails, and well, I got you on speaker. Hang on a second. Hey, no, please. Uh, by by all by all means, give me uh, no, give no. me the, the best audio quality you can. Go ahead. We have five months to pre-plan a shutdown. The shutdown has doesn't have to be disastrous unless we want it to be disastrous. So can't Trump. Trump Trump does what, what we do in engineering, a CPM, a critical path method. In other words, at the end is the building, the beginning is how you build the building. He just has to figure out what we want to do when it gets to be a shutdown. Does it, does he want to hurt somebody or does he just want to show that, hey, you know what, a shutdown is not a big deal? Well, I, I think that the, the decision to have a shutdown, you'd have to establish the purpose of the shutdown, right? Why are we at a point where we will not bend? Because this is always it's a game of chicken, right? There's two sides and they're they're both uh, demanding things. They both want things. And, you know, Democrats and Republicans. And it seems that Republicans, are the ones who always blink and always pull off the road and are like, OK, fine, we'll, we'll fund the government. They'd have to isolate an issue. Planned Parenthood funding would be a good one, I think, and make the shutdown all about that issue and also make sure the American people know that life does not end as we know it if there's a, a government shutdown. Right. So, so you can do both of those things. You can also have the political battle, but also the educational aspect. And that would, I think, matter a lot going forward, too, of it's not the it's not a huge deal. Or at least it's not cataclysmic. But you don't have you don't have to hurt everybody. There has to be some way for five months you could pre-plan something, even if you have a kitty of cash somewhere. It's, it's got to be a way. So it shows that uh, Rep- Republicans aren't that bad. I mean, they are, but... Uh, they don't have to be that bad if it's going to be blamed on the Republicans. Listen, we'll shut down the government, but it's still going to work. And yeah, we- well, there's essential personnel, and they have to go to work no matter what. So, I, yeah, I, I don't think it's – it's. Ha- I, I mentioned this in the show yesterday. I went over, right, the different times. It's happened under Clinton, happened under Bush, happened under uh, Obama. I mean, this is this has not been uh, the, the case in the past that there was something atrocious that came from all of it, but we're – we're in this cycle. We're stuck in this cycle. It's very repetitive of Republicans cave and they say we'll fight when there's another battle for us. And this time around, we don't want to look like we can't govern. So we're just going to, you know, last time it was we don't want to fight this during an election year. Now it's we don't want to look incompetent. You know, next time it might be we don't want to hurt the midterms. I mean, you know, you can see how this plays out. No, it has to be we are in the majority. Here are our priorities. If the Democrats are going to filibuster and prevent and their and cause a shutdown with their filibuster, they have to be very clear on that. Here's the reason they're doing it, 
And oh, by the way, it's going to be okay. You're not all going to be starving in the street because there's been a filibuster and a you know a three day or a five day or a ten day government shutdown. You know what I'm saying, Ray? That's what I'm looking looking to plan ahead. Yeah, no, I'm. With, this is what I was saying yesterday. They got to they got to ready the the battleground for this, and they they clearly didn't do it this time around. Oh, yeah, I won't hear that until tonight because I'm always a day behind you. Sorry. All right. No, that's all right. No, I didn't mean it like that. I'm just saying I'm with you. So uh, thank you very much, Ray. I appreciate it. Appreciate you calling in. Uh, by the way, those of you who are uh, a little bit behind because you listen to the show on um, podcast, uh, a lot of you, if you do so, please subscribe on iTunes. And also, if you can rate this podcast on iTunes, that's really helpful, too. If you, I'm assuming if you listen, you enjoy the show. And I'm very thankful that that's how you feel. Uh, but please do rate the podcast and uh, subscribe. Don't just download it once. Become a subscriber. It is free. And if you really want to help, tell a friend or two. Um, that would be great. Also, you can go to bucksexon.com, and we are working on T-shirts. For those of you who've been asking about that, we're working on all kinds of merchandise, and you, we've already got articles posted up throughout the day. And there will be uh, more ways. There are more ways to listen there, including listening live on the iHeart app platform. You can click on a link there. All right, we're going to hit a break here. We'll be right back. Before we uh, move on to our next topic, we got Vincent in North Carolina on WPTI. I've been patiently waiting. Vincent, good to have you, sir. Uh, yes, sir. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I was listening to some of the uh, people calling in to your show and various shows, and they can't seem to put together why all these protests and the crazy people are out in droves. Uh, well, to me, I've looked at it and the evidence points to they're funded, uh, they're indoctrinated. Um, universities are basically taken over with this. Uh, uh, we're not here to educate you, we're here to indoctrinate you. Uh, uh, methodology methodology that's been going on for uh, well over 50 years and uh, I have to say that uh, if you if you find that difficult to believe, uh, just look up a gentleman named Norman Dodd on the internet, and there's a couple of interviews done with him where he explains uh, how we got to this point. And of course, surely the Democrats, uh, some of our top uh, congressmen who are Democrats, uh, unfailing to promote this uh, socialism which uh, is supposed to gradually whittle us down to the idea that we don't have nationalism, we don't have a sovereign country anymore. Uh, it's all just one world view. I got you. Thanks for calling in, Vincent. I appreciate it. Uh, so I wanted to just touch on this before we um, move into uh, the next, because uh, we're, we're going to run out of time here and go into a break in a second. I mentioned that piece to you uh, yesterday that got all the attention, Hypatia, the Journal of Feminist Philosophy. Had a lot of fun with that one. And the piece was in defense of transracialism. There's uh, one female professor, as I understand, or, or, yeah, female academic, female professor in particular, who is really upset about this. And I, I managed to track down one of her postings on why she was uh, so opposed to this piece, remember, on transracialism. Transracialism is... is uh, taking the arguments for transgenderism and applying it to race. And I learned all kinds of words and interesting stuff, uh, new new words that the left has made up even from reading about this. But here's what you go. Tuvel, who is the author, quote, 
enacts violence and perpetuates harm in numerous ways throughout her essay. She dead names a trans woman, Caitlyn Jenner, formerly Bruce Jenner, that's the one. She uses the term transgenderism. She talks about biological sex. She focuses enormously on surgery, which promotes the objectification of trans bodies. Uh, in her discussion of transracialism, Tuvel doesn't cite a single woman of color philosopher, nor does she substantively engage with any work by black women, nor does she cite or engage with the work of any black trans women who have written on this topic. Uh, Tuvel describes her work as the intersection of critical race, feminist, and animal ethics. She describes her work on race as critical. Not only, or not once does the phrase white supremacy appear, appear anywhere in her work. This is an academic criticizing another academic. I'm reading this. I'm like, well, first of all, like, what is what is she saying exactly? Like, some of this doesn't really make sense. But also, I didn't know, I didn't know that now it's, I learned something new here. Transgender, uh, transgenderism is a, is not an okay phrase. This stuff changes so quickly. I, I can't. I, I literally can't keep up. I thought transgenderism was the the preferred nomenclature, but apparently the left is telling me no. He spreads freedom because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. Team, we got a guest with us now, Kyle Smith. He is a staff film critic for the New York Post and critic at large at National Review. Kyle, thanks so much for calling in. Hi, thanks. Uh, thanks let's start with your uh, piece on The uh, Handmaid's Tale, this new show that's out on, what is it, uh, Netflix or Amazon or one of those things. Um, your piece is, sorry, oh, Handmaid's Tale tells us nothing about Trump's America. What are people saying this this show tells us about Trump's America? What's going on here? It's hilarious. Uh, absolutely every news uh, organization in the world, in the United States, uh, is running the exact same review of this piece, saying uh, this, this new Hulu series, The Handmaid's Tale, is eerily prescient. It's, uh, it's as though we're ripped from the headlines. It tells us everything there is to know about how women are treated in Trump's America. But, uh, in fact, uh, it's a dystopian sci-fi tale, and it bears no resemblance whatsoever to what's going on. Well, what are, so, tell people about what, what, what's in this. I actually saw about... 15 minutes of it like last week and i was like this this is pretty this is not my thing this is not my jam it's pretty boring but uh, tell folks what are the things that come up in the show that then they of course try to uh, try to uh, put on trump and and where this country's going and trump's america so it's based on a 1985 novel by the feminist uh, margaret atwood and it's set in a dystopian near future where a sort of uh, Protestant Christian theocracy has taken over the northeastern U.S. And all women are basically slaves. And the women who are fertile are, are basically sex slaves, and they're, they're held hostage at rape camps where men of sufficient rank are uh, allowed to have, uh, you know, rape them whenever they feel like it with a view toward preserving the human race because fertility rates have, have dropped substantially and the human race is in danger of dying out. So the uh, solution of the radical Christians is is this total subjugation of women. Women are are obliged to wear these sort of scarlet cloaks to indicate their sin, and uh, they're not allowed to do anything except sort of cook and shop. And uh, oh, there's a civil war going on within the the former U.S., which means uh, all sorts of goods are scarce. You can't get oranges in the grocery store anymore. Um, gay people are being uh, executed. 
and uh, you can be sort of flogged. Oh, you can be tasered if you uh, refer to a gay person as gay instead of as a uh, gender traitor. Huh. Well, you know, Hillary Clinton brought this up at the Planned Parenthood 100th anniversary speech. 30- what a time it is to be holding this centennial. Just ask those who have been watching The Handmaid's Tale. This show has prompted important conversations about women's rights and autonomy. In The Handmaid's Tale, women's rights are gradually, slowly stripped away. As one character says, we didn't look up from our phones until it was too late. Uh... What 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 are what are the important discussions again that the show is starting for us now? It seems pr- seems pretty extreme, Kyle. She's not reaching out in any way. She still hasn't learned her lesson. She thinks appealing to sort of a radical paranoid left is the way to to, to for the Democrats to win. She she got blown out among the white working class. She lost white women, and she still thinks this kind of ridiculous kind of campus level appeal to uh, really radicalized elements and and uh, completely unrealizable fears is the way to attract voters. When people care about things like pocketbook issues and they care about things like, you know, getting immersed in too many foreign wars, she's totally not speaking to, to where the public is right now. Speaking to Kyle Smith, he's a film critic for the New York Post. Uh, Kyle, the left also seems very willing, and this is just based on the, uh, not, not just their sort of news analysis and, and what we see there, but also in, in pop culture and, and elsewhere, uh, to push the notion of Christian Christian theocracy is is looming and needs to be we need to raise awareness about the problems of Christian theocracy in America. I think it's interesting. Some of those same folks also are always uh, very defensive about any talk of Islamism and Islamic theocracy. I just want to know if you, if you want to try to parse that for me a little bit. Yeah, this is a classic part. In the third episode of The Handmaid's Tale, there's a, a scene where a sort of um, uh, a woman who gets a little too uppity uh, is is forced to undergo genital mutilation, right? And what what religion on earth is conducting genital mutilations right now? There are a couple of doctors arrested in Michigan uh, the very week The Handmaid's Tale premiered for performing genital mutilation in accordance with uh, a longstanding tradition in certain sectors of the Muslim world. And it's uh, the Muslim world where you'll find women forced to wear these uh, these sort of uh, cloaks and, and loose clothing. It's the Muslim world where you know, women can't drive cars in Saudi Arabia. It's a Muslim world where women are officially are officially second-class citizens and are subjugated to the wills of their husbands. Yeah, we don't hear any of this from Hillary Clinton or anyone on the left. It's like everything the Muslim world does is great because they, like us, hate the Republicans more than anything else. Well, I'd have to wonder if a if a radical feminist uh, will, as has been the case, by the way, I'm sure you've read some of these pieces, Kyle, when it comes to Islamic uh, dress codes for women, including the most extreme ones, there are feminists who will write defenses of those dress codes, including a, a full abaya or even a full burqa for women, on the idea that it is empowering to women and makes them feel sexy, in fact. Uh, and I, I just I doubt that anyone on the left is going to uh, take the position that in The Handmaid's Tale, women wearing these sort of weird lampshades over their heads is empowering. I doubt that anyone will take that perspective. Yeah, it, it all comes from the sort of the enemy is my enemy is my friend thinking. And since uh, probably who the Muslim uh, uh, 
citizen is, is going to be least likely to be in agreement with is going to be like straight white male Republicans. And you know, straight white male Republicans are the longstanding enemy of progressives. Then the progressives think, well, the Muslims hate the same – at least they hate the right people. So we'll make any kinds of defense. We'll make any kind of rationalizations to say that things that normally we'd be totally opposed to – you know, stoning people for adultery or throwing gay people off roofs, anything that we would we would absolutely go ballistic over if, if it were one one hundredth that bad among Republicans. We'll totally forgive it when Muslims do it. Kyle, are you up on this Hypatia article pylon that New York Magazine wrote about yesterday? No. Oh, OK. Well, then forget that. Let's talk about Dan Rather, the fake newsman. <laughs> well, Dan Rather has resurfaced lately because uh, – uh, nobody watches his TV show, which is not a really obscure network, and he's interviewing like you know Kid, Kid Rock and sort of B list uh, music stars. But he's resurfaced because he's a big deal on Facebook. He's got millions of likes on Facebook, and he's posting all these sort of angry rants, these sort of resist rants about uh, the Trump administration. But when you look back at his career, his whole career has been based on fake news. I mean, it wasn't just the case that uh, the, the made up. Air National Guard memos, which finally got him fired from CBS, that wasn't the first time he played fast and loose with the facts. Uh, in fact, he completely bungled the story that made his name, which was the Kennedy assassination. He, he reported a rumor that he had not substantiated at the time to uh, the CBS people in New York. He was in Dallas the day Kennedy was assassinated. And he, he reported a rumor that he hadn't nailed down to the people in, in New York because he, he thought he was talking to someone other than who he was talking to. He got confused about who he was talking to. So he accidentally broke the story of the Kennedy assassination uh, before he had nailed it down. And if you go through his whole career, you know he, he incorrectly reported in 1969 that J. Edgar Hoover was about to get fired by Nixon, but Hoover continued to serve and, and was still FBI director when he died. Uh, There's a whole episode – uh, in uh, in Afghanistan, where he was called Gunga Dan, and he went and sort of paraded his way through Afghanistan and didn't really uh, break any news whatsoever, but made kind of a fool of himself. Throughout his career, there's been all this showboating and kind of eliding facts and not really getting to the, not really bothering too much with whether things were true or not. And this was even written about in the famous 1972 political campaign book, The Boys on the Bus, in which the, uh, the other reporters told the author of the book that rather had a reputation for going on air with things he hadn't nailed down yet. Why do you, do you think that, that some of these guys who are TV journalists, it, it's almost like an addiction, like they, they just can't they can't not be near a camera because uh, they there are a lot of options. I mean, Dan Rather has made millions and millions and millions of dollars. I mean, I don't know how much the guy's worth, but he, he was making, like, when I interned for CBS Evening News over a decade ago, like, I was making, like, $7 million a year or something. So he's he's a very wealthy guy. He doesn't have to do this. He could just write and could engage in ideas that, that uh, or could engage in, you know, in journalism without having to have his, his face on camera. Do you, do you think these guys just, Dan Rather's not the only one, but they just can't give it up. It just It's never enough. It's total narcissism, yeah. I, I think it is like a drug to be on the air, uh, to, to think you're making a, a difference when really you're just a newsreader in people's lives. Uh, you know, to me, Dan Rather is like the original Ron Burgundy. He's just a, an empty suit, a guy who didn't really know what he was talking about half the time. But, you know, he would get really, really huffy about, uh, you know, preserving uh, his little corner of the universe, like that infamous time back in the 80s when. Uh, the U.S. Open ran a little late, and he was he was 
going to have to go a little late with the CBS Evening News. And instead, he walked off the set, and CBS had to broadcast six minutes of dead air because rather threw a big hissy fit and refused to be at his, at his desk. I've always been amazed that some of these guys made the salaries that they did, considering, especially on the newsreader side of things, everyone is there. There are th- there are literally a thousand people who could do the job tomorrow, but uh, people get attached to their their preferred newsreader. At least they used to. I, I don't think that job really exists anymore. The super or, or is ceasing to exist slowly but surely. The super um, uh, wealthy and and prominent, uh, irreplaceable in his own eyes, at least. A newsreader guy who's just looking at a prompter. But anyway, before we let you go, uh, Kyle, Bill de Blasio's pre-pre-K fantasy. Bill de Blasio, everybody, is the mayor of New York City. Just wondering, what, what is a pre-pre-K, uh, what does that even mean? Well, he instituted a pre-K program for four-year-olds uh, a couple of years ago. And now he figures, uh, I'll, I'll give up pre-pre-K to three-year-olds. So three-year-olds who aren't really old enough to be educated in any meaningful sense He's going to basically set up daycare programs and call them schools for three-year-olds across the city. But as I pointed out in my piece, graduation rates in New York City public schools are terrible. I mean, it's like you already have them for, from pre-K to kindergarten all the way through 12th grade, and they're not learning anything, and they're not, not graduating. And your solution is to you know, basically give them a year of, of playing with uh, Play-Doh and box at age three, and you think that's going to get them college ready? What you need is a better education uh, in the schools that already are out there, that already exist. And a way you could do that that wouldn't cost you any money whatsoever would be to just make it easier for kids to go to charter schools, which are public schools. They're publicly funded, and some of them have amazing test scores, and they're sending all kinds of kids uh, to college. But de Blasio is totally opposed to charter schools, and they're growing uh, despite and not because of him. Kyle Smith, a film critic for the New York Post, critic at large for National Review. Uh, great to have you, Kyle. Come back soon. Okay, thanks. Team, we're going to hit a break here, and we'll be right back. Uh, just, oh, I know, I've been talking about this Hypatia thing a lot. So it's, I, we just, I asked Kyle on the spot, I'm like, Kyle, you're up with a Hypatia story, right? He's like, no. I'm like, yeah, I, that's not that's not surprising. I, I don't know how many people are. Some people are more yesterday than, uh, or more today than yesterday, but still, it's, I find it fascinating. Just one thing, there's also this female, and they keep blacking out her name in the reports that I'm seeing here from different journalists, from the author of the original New York Magazine piece, in fact. Uh, But the the woman who kind of led the pylon against the uh, initial article writer for Hypatia wrote this. And this is, look, I find this fascinating because I like to know the left's arguments, but I also, I'm learning new terms and phrases and because uh, I don't I'm not a feminist philosophy professor this isn't something that I spent a lot of time on but he, one of the criticisms was as follows quote why doesn't the response mention anti-blackness or apologize to black people to black women and to black trans women replacing quote black people with quote people of color is erasure it is anti-black racism and it is not okay uh, this is, this is, I, I did not know that, that I thought people of color was considered to be, and, and I'm not the, I'm not the only one that, I mean, other people in this, uh, you've got this, this one writer from New York Magazine saying it's a hundred percent standard to refer to people of color. It's just weird to suddenly evolve the language he writes, but you see, that's what they do all the time. 
the language is always changing because it's just another way of asserting power and keeping opposition off balance. It makes it harder to engage in an exchange of ideas, engage in a debate with people when you could run afoul of speech policing that changes day day in and day out. I mean, you, know, you don't know what's okay and what's not okay. Um, so I thought that was interesting. And then uh, on, on an aside but a, or a separate but related note, New York Times today published this uh, response from uh, six different students on campus um, who were responding to f- people coming on to speak who are considered to be, uh, well, too tough to handle for some of these snowflake campus types. And they, they I, I, thought, I thought that this, in particular, it was a student from Middlebury, and this was published in the New York Times just today. This was their response to, well, should you allow controversial speakers on a college campus? Here is what uh, this one student wrote. Quote, challenging a student's humanity is not a tactic to open their minds. Um, this is up there with that's just the title, by the way. Speech is violence. The left now will openly claim this on a regular basis. Speech is violence. And you're like, well, how can it's just an, I'm talking about ideas. That's violence. That's that debases the notion of what violence really is. Right. But speech is violence is one thing to say, but also challenging someone's humanity. I, I, I don't know what that means either. Uh, what What is challenging? Um, what is challenging one's humanity? Uh So, um, here's what she wrote, this one student in Middlebury. This is a senior in Middlebury. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, What that? I'm not good at math. No, a junior. Quote, conversations about free speech need more nuance, especially when it comes to what is at stake for marginalized communities. Speech is not just discourse. It can have very real material effects. Those effects are not the same for everyone. To ignore this element of the issue is to ignore United States history. I hear a lot about a popular straw man, the coddled college snowflake who can't deal with ideas that are different. This does not accurately describe student protesters, many of whom are queer, female, or of color, or a mix of all of the above. We are not sheltered from ideas. We are far too aware of the ways they can inform prejudice and hateful action. Uh, okay. Uh, it is also important to contextualize college protests. Uh, and then she goes on to write, American universities have a long way to go to overcome racist legacies of exclusion. So she's just moving on from topic to topic without actually addressing the, okay, well, w- why can't somebody come on campus to to say some things that you may not like? And it all comes down to, well, it's a challenging of, a, it's a challenging of humanity occurs. These are meaningless phrases in the sense that a normal person reads them and goes, I, what, what is that? But they prefer to use those meaningless phrases because they sound ominous and scary, and then you can shoehorn whatever definition into them, into them you want for the purposes of then using them as a weapon, not an actual physical weapon, but a weapon against those with whom you disagree. Um, so I, I'm going to stay on, the, on these topics because this is, if you want to know where the progressive mentality is right now and what they're thinking and how they're operating campuses are the the place you have to look and professors and the anti-free speech movement is not something that uh we should take lightly it it has 
profound effects because keep in mind, these students are all going to graduate, get jobs, run for office, be in media. Uh, if they really believe that speech is violence, we are in for a generation of Americans coming up here soon that believe that speech is violence. Please download the podcast, Buck Sexton with America Now on iTunes. Check out BuckSexton.com. Until tomorrow night, my friends, shields high.